You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then we will move into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 today. So let's pray. God, we just once again want to praise you and thank you for another day that we have here to gather with other believers at Sovereign Hope. God, I'm thankful for my church family, for what they mean to me, and for the love they have for you. God, I thank you for the work that, they're, that you're doing in their life. God, I ask that you would continue that as you instruct us from your word this morning. God, help us to continue to understand what Paul was communicating to this early church uh, so that we can take those truths and use them in our church today so that we can be faithful to be and to do what you've called us to. And God, I pray that you would encourage us in the truths of the gospel God, that you would encourage us in, in your character as we see your character revealed in the gospel. And that, God, you would ultimately empower us to live lives that are worthy of this gospel. Lives that are structured around proclaiming this good news to those who are dying without it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we'll be today. Just to kind of summarize and catch you up with what happened in chapter 1, we looked at how Paul uh, worked tirelessly to establish this church at Thessalonica, how despite much conflict and despite much um, persecution that there was there initially, Uh, that God was faithful to establish his church, uh, that God used Paul and Timothy and Silas to establish a new work here that that was effective, that uh, even though they were only there a short amount of time, that the gospel took root in this area, that the church began to flourish even in their absence, that the discipleship that they were able to give these believers... Um, the Holy Spirit used it and multiplied it to the point that their reputation was going out everywhere. And people were aware of their conversion. They were aware of their salvation. And we saw specifically how we can take this into our church because we looked at the process of discipleship that Paul seemingly lays out here in these verses, that we're to be the type of people worth following. He says, you know what type of men we proved to be among you, that we were the type of men that were worth listening to, that were worth modeling your life after. So we have a responsibility as believers here at Sovereign Hope for this area that God has called us to, to be the type type of people that are worth imitating, worth following. Secondly, we're to get other people to follow us, that we're not just to have a relationship with God for our purposes, that we're not just to grow in faith and mature in our faith, For our relationship with God, that it's meant to bring other people into that as well. That we're to uh, model what it means to follow Christ so that we can get others to follow us so that they can mature in their faith as well. Ultimately with the goal of teaching them how to do the exact same thing with others. That we teach them how to model following Christ so that they can pour themselves into others. So that everyone is coming to maturity in Christ. We saw that... Or we explain that the goal of our discipleship here at Sovereign Hope is to produce people that are joyfully striving to bring glory to God by faithfully living in a fallen world while anxiously waiting for the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because Paul wraps up chapter 1 by saying, or describing the reputation that these people have, he says, you have turned to God from idols. So there was a, a turning that took place when they put their faith in God. A turning from false gods to the one true God. To serve the living and true God. It wasn't just a a one-time expression of faith. It was a a lifestyle change. A purpose change for these people. They're no longer serving false gods. They're now serving the one true God. And in doing that, they're waiting for Jesus to return. He says, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And Paul continues these these same type thoughts in chapter 2. Initially, when you read through it, it sounds very similar to what he said in chapter 1. But I think he presents it with some 
some more detail and, and from a different perspective. So we start reading today in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. And I really want to zero in on this idea of what it means to be entrusted with the gospel. I think everything in these verses is pointing to what Paul says here when he says, I've been approved by God. I've been entrusted with the gospel. It doesn't matter what conflict I go through, because here's the reality. That a, that a heavenly father that created this universe has looked down upon me and has stamped his approval on me. He's entrusted the best news that could ever be formulated into my hands so that I have to speak about it to others. And I speak not for their approval, but for the God who has already approved me. So I really want us to understand as a church what it means for us to be entrusted with this gospel. And you know, if I start off by introducing the idea of what is the gospel. We, we say the, the word gospel so much because it's all throughout Scripture. We see it start in the book of Genesis when the first initial promise of Jesus is mentioned to Adam and Eve that salvation is coming, that you messed up, you rebelled, you sinned, you, you stepped out of relationship with me, you started acting like you were God and made your own decisions, but, but all hope is not lost because there's going to come a, a man from the seed of Eve who will ultimately redeem mankind back to me, who will put enmity between Satan's people and my people. And there will be a remnant of people that are rescued and saved. So we see the message of the gospel throughout Scripture, but we say the word gospel so much in our culture that I'm afraid if we're not careful, we will all define it differently. Uh, and some people will define it wrongly. Uh, if you were to go to uh, Amazon.com or to a bookstore, you could search the word gospel, come up with some good stuff, and come up with some really bad stuff. Some really bad stuff. Uh, one example that I know of is um, there's a man by the name of Phil Jackson, famous NBA basketball coach, won a lot of championships with Chicago Bulls and the Los Angeles Lakers. He has a book out called The Gospel According to Phil Jackson. This guy's a heavy Buddhist. He's heavy into Eastern religions. And obviously what his book is about is not the same gospel that we're about. So that word gets abused. It gets misused. Um, even within the church. Even within the church. One of the, the dangers of the emergent church movement. And some of the guys that we've identified to you. Guys like Rob Bell. These guys have a distorted view of the gospel that we treasure and cherish so much. They have a distorted view of what God is planning to do with mankind. And so I think for us as Sovereign Hope moving forward, it's important that we get on the same page about what the gospel is. So that as we continue to talk about it, we know how we define it here at this church. And we define it according to what God's word has to say. So I'll list some space there in your notes. Um... I'm not going to give you much time to do this, but I would be curious if someone were to ask you today, what is the gospel, how you would answer that question in one sentence. So take a second to think about that. How would you answer that question? What is the gospel? Because it can be defined in one sentence, I think. It can't be obviously thoroughly exhausted and explained in one sentence. But I think it's healthy for us to, to be able to articulate a gospel definition in, in one sentence. Because as, as we take on the commission to share the gospel, if I'm dealing with someone in, in Sonoy or Griffin and trying to share the gospel, I need to be able to communicate what I'm trying to share quickly so that I can then begin to unpack it. 
I need to get it all out there. Here's what the gospel is. Now let me explain to you the workings of it. So take a couple of minutes and uh, maybe jot down, even if it's not jotting down your sentence, but jotting down some things that you feel like would have to be contained in your sentence. And then we're going to hear from a couple of people that I gave almost a 24-hour notice on for them to read their sentence to you guys. And we'll see how they did. All right, I'm going to ask the people that have already written their sentences to go ahead and come up here with me, just so we can get them on the podcast, so that the entire world can hear your definition. Here's, here's ultimately what I would, I would like to see us get to. Now, these definitions that you're going to hear from, from these people are going to be different. Uh, they're going to have their own personality um, and their own context probably come out in their definition. doesn't mean that one is more right than the other, but what I would like for us to do is get to the point where we can, we can come up with a church definition for the gospel. Um, that we can make sure that all the important elements are there. So that in a sense, we can begin to memorize the same definition for the gospel so that we really are on the same page. So that we know that we're all trusting in the same gospel and communicating the same gospel. So that's kind of the direction I'm, I'm wanting us to go in, is for us to, to nail down a definition for this church. Not that it's better than any other definition that's out there, but for us to just kind of take the important elements of the gospel so that when we teach on Sunday morning and we say the word gospel, that definition comes to mind. When we say we're going to go out to the streets of Sonoy and share the gospel, we know what we're about to go do. We know what message we're about to take with us. All right, so we're going to hear from these. We'll just start right here and work our way down. Um, and they're going to share with you their one-sentence definition. Um, some of them may sound like they're more than a sentence. Uh, so just listen for the period, because <laughs> there might be a lot of commas. All right? The gospel is the infallible good news that Christ loves us so deeply that he offers the gift of salvation and eternal life through his death on the cross and his resurrection to all people. Okay. I just put that Jesus died on the cross, um, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Okay. Um, God's love and justice, justness show through the sacrifice of his son to make atonement and salvation for sinners. Okay. Jesus was sent by God to live perfectly, pay for our sin by dying perfectly, and rise from the grave to perfection so that all who would by faith believe in him as Savior and submit to him as Lord would be saved from sin and reconciled to God by him. All right. <laughs> How is the good news of a holy God saving a fallen and sinful mankind and redeeming them back to himself through the life, work, death, and resurrection of his perfect son, Jesus Christ? Um, <clears throat> I have that. Uh, the, go- uh, the gospel is that we were unable to be with God because of sin. Christ, having lived a perfect life and sacrificed that life for us on the cross, has defeated sin and death, and now we can be free from that sin and receive salvation by grace through faith. Um, I had a holy, sovereign God send his righteous sons as a propitiation of sinful man so that those who believe can have a relationship with him and one day live and worship him in his presence. It says, the gospel is that while I failed to meet God's standard of perfection and am destined to an eternity away from him, Christ died for me as the only means to pay my sin debt and rose from the dead so that I may live with him in eternity. Okay, good. In hearing those definitions, what are some key elements that you feel like have to be there if we're trying to define everything about the gospel into one sentence. What are some, as we try to structure a church definition, what are some things that you feel like have to be in that definition? All right, the sinfulness of man. Because the sinfulness of man communicates the need for the gospel. All right, what else? Okay, the sovereignty of God in what, in what aspects? Okay, that he's right in all circumstances or just. Okay. 
What else? Christ on the cross and the resurrection? Okay. That's two aspects of Christ's work. What would be a third aspect that would also need to be included there? His perfection, okay? Or even his, uh, his return as well. But as far as the, the salvific work of Jesus, the, the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the resurrection, anything else you feel like is a necessary element to the gospel? Do what? Okay, Redemption. The payment of sin, the um, the purchasing of us, which is what uh, is carried with the idea of redemption, the paying of a price to bring us back. Um, redemption, the meaning of redemption is easy to remember when you think of a redemption center at, at an arcade. That you are you are paying a price to get something into your possession. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He pays a price. To purchase us into possession, to to adopt us into His family, He He redeems us. He pays His blood, He sheds His blood, He absorbs God's wrath for uh, the right to to bring us into His family. Anything else that stands out as something that needs to be there? Repentance. Okay, repentance. As far as um, our response to Christ's work is how the gospel gets applied to us. Here's the definition that we have on our website uh, right now. Um, doesn't mean that it's our definition moving forward, but this is, this is what we currently have, and I want to evaluate it in light of how we study these passages in 1 Thessalonians, and even in light of the definitions that were given to us today by these different individuals what we have currently on our website, you can look at this on your own if you go to the resource section where there's a bunch of questions listed. If you click on what is the gospel, then we've got, um, we've got videos that you can watch about the gospel. Uh, we've got the gospel, for lack of a better word, track that we've used in, in the past with some of y'all. Um, so some different ways to, uh, to feast on the gospel are available on that, on that part of the website. But we've got in our, in our website right now, the gospel is the good news that the just and gracious creator of the universe has looked upon hopelessly sinful people and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to attain righteousness on our behalf, bear God's wrath against sin on the cross, and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who have faith in him will be reconciled to God for his glory forever. And then the simplified definition of that for your notes is the gospel is God's plan to save man from his sin through Jesus Christ for his glory forever. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Jesus Christ for his glory forever. It's a plan that's been unfolded um, from the beginning of time. It's a plan that was developed and thought of and brought into existence even before time began. And sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the idea that the gospel is not God's plan B. The gospel is not God's reaction to sin that he was unprepared for. God never created the earth anticipating that everything would be um, what we would consider perfect and Adam and Eve never sinned. We know that God ordained the gospel. He ordained Christ dying on the cross before Adam and Eve were ever born or were ever created and before their children were ever born. So God's plan for the gospel is not plan B. It's always been plan A. It's always been plan A for God to reveal himself to his creation through this format. Um, so if we understand the gospel to be his eternal plan as a just and gracious creator, and that aspect of him being creator necessitates that we're responsible because he has creator rights over us. He is 
our authority. And so as his creation, we have a responsibility to be obedient to him. That's why our sin is so uh, so damning to us. It's, it's the reason that we deserve hell. It's the reason that we are to be punished for our sin because we've offended a creator that we're responsible to. And, and, and when I talk to, to some of my students about this, I, I relate to the sense that, that Connor has a responsibility to be obedient to his parents. It's his parents that set rules for him. It's not Adam and Jim. Now, if Connor's in a context where, where they're temporarily responsible for him, then he's supposed to be obedient to him. But how silly would it be for my sister to walk up to Connor and say, Connor, make sure you're in bed tonight by 8 o'clock, because that's what time we make sure that our kids are in bed. Now, that makes no sense because she doesn't have parental rights over Connor. We have a responsibility to be obedient to God because he's our creator. And I think it's so important that that gets communicated when we communicate sin to somebody. That you are sinful, not because I'm telling you that you do things wrong, but because you have rebelled against a creator that you had the responsibility to obey. He brought you into existence, therefore he has rights over you. Rights to tell you what to do, rights to demand that you do what he said. It's God's plan to save man from his sin. And the plan is to save man through the work of Christ. Through the perfect life. Because scripture says we have to be perfect to get to heaven. Good works won't get us to heaven. Perfect works get us to heaven. And none of us can do it. None of us in and of ourselves can achieve perfection. So it's perfect works that gets us to heaven. It becomes confusing and wrong. And it becomes Satan's message of the gospel when he tries to circulate the idea that good works get us to heaven. And it's the predominant way that people believe we make atonement for our sin. It's that our good works outweigh our bad works. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through the work of Christ. Christ comes to be perfect for us. Christ dies on the cross to atone for our mess-ups, to atone for our rebellion, to atone for our sins, past, present, and future. It's God's plan to save man from his sin through Jesus Christ. And I think an aspect that gets missed way too often is that this plan of salvation is for His glory forever. Now, when we talk about God getting glory, that includes the good of His children, but the ultimate end of our salvation is not for our good. And we're going to see in a minute why that connection is so important. God did not save us just for our good. He saved us for His glory And His glory includes our good, but we can't see our good as the end all for salvation. If we see it as the purpose for being to get us out of hell, then we miss the purpose of the gospel. The gospel, the purpose, the reason for it is for God to receive the glory that He's due. So that's that's the message that we're communicating. That God, Creator, wants to save man who is in sin, who, who can't fix his situation. Can't do enough works to get to heaven because it's perfect works. So God, before the beginning of time, ordained a plan where Jesus would come to do all of it for us so that God could be glorified forever by his children who he's rescued for their good. That's the message that we communicate. What does it mean when Paul says then that we've been entrusted with this message? He says we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. To become entrusted with it, I think it's important that we first establish that we have to obey the gospel. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus is talking. He's proclaiming the gospel of God, it says, in Galilee. And he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you were to look up 2 Thessalonians 1.18 and 1 Peter 4.17, which have been given to you in your notes for you to look at on your own time, both passages say that, that God's punishment and wrath come on those who do not obey the gospel. People that do not obey the gospel will receive God's wrath. What? 
I'll have to check on that then. I may have written it down wrong. There's not a second Thessalonians 118. I'll check on it. There's another passage in the New Testament that says if you do not obey the gospel, you will receive God's wrath. If anybody has an, uh, an ESV app on there, they, they can search obey the gospel and you can find the other passage for us. You'll be a hero. Mark 1.15 gives us an idea of what it means to obey the gospel. You got it? 1.8. Second Thessalonians 1.8. Is that what you meant? Just got an extra, got one happy there. Jesus tells us what it means to obey the gospel. He says you repent of your sins and you believe. And a lot of times the word believe and faith are used interchangeably in the New Testament. We've perverted that word believe and, and, and dimmed it down to where it doesn't mean as much as it should. Okay, When we talk about believing the gospel, there, there's the aspect of faith. We're not just talking about believing that, that God exists. There's, there's a belief there, a faith there that necessitates action that happens. So when Jesus says, repent and believe, he's calling people that hear this message to action. To, to putting faith and trust in the plan. He says, repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. Believe that I've come to do everything that you're trying to do but can't. Stop working, as the book of Romans says, stop working so that you can be found righteous in my righteousness. So for us to be entrusted with the gospel, we first have to, to obey it so that God can entrust us with the gospel. So the prerequisite to being entrusted is obeying the gospel. Paul's already obeyed it. So he says, I've been approved by God. I've been entrusted with this gospel. And then I came up with just five things that I think these, these four verses right here communicate to us what it means to be entrusted. When I say the word entrusted, what ideas or images or pictures does that give to you? Stewardship. What else? Protection. Responsibility. What's that? Peace. Peace. What's that word entrusted communicate to you? Okay, action. The word entrusted, I mean, it definitely communicates responsibility. I don't know why, because I've never seen this movie. But as I'm studying this, like, I kept thinking about the 80s movie um, Gremlins, where the guy gets, like, this goofy animal. And the whole premise of the movie is based on the intense responsibility that you have to take care of this animal, to expose it to light. It's bad. There's three rules. Expose it to light. Uh, don't get it wet and don't feed it after dark. And the dad gives it as a present and says, you got to obey these three rules. I'm entrusting this to you. I have no idea why that kept coming to my mind. I've never seen the movie. But as I'm studying this, I kept thinking like, yep, what a responsibility that kid had to take care of that thing. It's intense responsibility. When we talk about the gospel, God's saving plan for mankind, Something that was established before you were ever thought of by your parents, obviously, because we're going way back before time. I mean, way back. A plan that was developed way back, and now you individually have been entrusted with it. That should communicate unbelievable responsibility. That it's a weighty thing to have the creator of the universe say, here is the gospel, I'm entrusting it to you. We've got to see the responsibility that, that Paul is, is communicating with these words. He says, I've been improved by God, and I've been entrusted with this gospel. I've been entrusted with the plan that God has had since before time began. And, and because of that, I can't help but speak it to others. Number one, when we talk about being entrusted with the gospel, I think Paul would have us to see that it means that we endure in it. We endure in it. Paul says in, in verse 1 and 2, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, 
We have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul says, look, we were, we were getting persecuted in Philippi sharing the gospel. And so we were forced out of there and we came to you guys and shared the gospel. And we continue to experience conflict. But he's saying, despite the conflict, it was not in vain. So he's enduring with the gospel. He's not allowing uh, roadblocks or frustrations or conflicts to, uh, to stunt him from going with the gospel to other places. He's enduring in the gospel, despite persecution, despite conflict. Now, we can turn to Acts chapter 16 for the historical account of what happened in Philippi. We look at what happened in Thessalonica when Jason and his people were brought before the, the, the government because they were hiding Paul. In Acts 16, verse 16, we see what happened in Philippi and what caused the conflict that's being talked about by Paul when he references that we were, we were persecuted, we were mistreated, we were beat up in Philippi. So in verse 16, we were going to the place of prayer. We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So the idea here is that you've got a group of, uh, uh, maybe a couple of men here who are making a business off of a girl who's possessed. The, the, the satanic power is allowing her to do things that people are paying money to see and, and have done over and over again. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. It's kind of like, thank you. Thank you for um, helping us out there. Like, we appreciate you who are so respected in this community confessing Christ because you can't help but do it because you are created being as well. And as she kept doing for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that the hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and magistrates tore the, gar the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. If you know the background, this is completely unacceptable treatment for a Roman citizen. And they're disregarding Paul's citizenship here. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. So these guys rescue a girl from who knows how long she's been under this, this, um, these chains of bondage. Who knows where this girl's parents are? I mean, this, girl, this girl's parents are allowing her to be, to be used in a way for profit when she needs help. Paul rescues her through the power of God. And he's, he's persecuted for it. He's thrown into prison and beaten and abused for rescuing a little girl out of bondage. These people are rejecting the message of the gospel. So that's the conflict that he's referencing when he says that, that we endured this in Philippi. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, what I did was I tried to, uh, to search other places that Paul uses the word entrusted. Entrusted with the gospel is a, is a, is a favorite phrase of Paul's. And so he uses it in different areas of the New Testament as well. In 2 Timothy 1, 8, Paul expresses to Timothy the truth that we're to endure in the gospel. He says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. We don't earn God's favor. He gave it to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, an eternal perspective on our salvation, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Lord's, of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. That is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I believe, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard it until that day 
what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, I can endure the gospel, I can endure the the persecution and the mistreatment that comes from being gospel-saturated and for living my life according to the gospel, because I know there's a God who's keeping the, the, the completion of the gospel, the completion of my salvation. There's a God who is guarding that and protecting that that will give me the end of my salvation when Jesus returns. This gospel, he says, that I've been entrusted with. Endure it. Now here's here's why this is so important. Because here's the danger in church today. An inappropriate view of God and the gospel. And this is what I was trying to emphasize in our definition. That the gospel is for God's glory, not ultimately for our good. It's for His glory, and our good is contained in that glory. But if we separate them and make the good of us the focus, then it messes everything up. Here's how that works. You may have seen um, a video that, um, or it's a video of a sermon by Matt Chandler that's on YouTube. It's him talking about moralistic deism. Does anybody know how he defines moralistic deism or what that means? It's a perspective on, on God and how God works. Does anybody remember what he says in that spiel that he has? Anybody seen that video? You got it? Right. Yeah, it's, it's, if we're not careful, that message gets communicated, especially to our children growing up in church. We teach them to be good. And they develop an expectation that if I'm good, then God's going to be good to me. And there's a sense where we put God into debt to us. That I'm going to do good, I'm going to be a good child of God, and you're to return me with good. The only problem is that when bad happens, that person gets the exact opposite of what they were expecting, and it causes a lot of people to leave the church. There's such an important responsibility on parents to communicate the gospel in such a way that the good of your child is not the goal. To teach them to expect conflict and persecution. That's why I think it's so important that Ben's back there teaching these verses to our children. Teaching them that conflict comes with the gospel. So that we can be prepared for it. Jesus prepared his disciples. He says, it's not going to be good for you guys. Some of you are going to die for me. We have to be prepared so that we can endure it. God doesn't repay us for being good. He's not in our debt. And here, here's how it plays out even in my life. Um, here I am, uh, believing that I've given my life to the gospel, that I've chosen um, a, a secondary job that allows me to teach the gospel for maybe less pay than I could get at another job. Here I am. Uh, trying to be obedient to God to plan a church and what I feel like he's, he's given me desires to do. And so in, in my perspective, I'm being obedient to God. I'm doing everything that I, can, I know of that he's asked me to do. It would be very easy in my flesh to then go to an ultrasound and expect that God has given me a baby that's completely healthy with no issues. And then to find out that, hey, there might be an issue here, it would be easy in my flesh to say, that's not fair. God owes me a completely healthy baby. That I've done everything that God's asked me to do, so there should be absolutely nothing on that ultrasound that would cause me to question what's going to happen. You owe me a healthy baby. That's moralistic deism. Me being faithful to God and then expecting Him to come through for me in the way that I think He should. So I could lay in bed that night and say, God, like, how dare you give me a baby that might have a health problem when you give so many other people healthy babies you owe me? Or I can lay in bed and say, God's glory is the absolute most important thing in my life. So if he has a a plan that includes a, a baby that may not be completely healthy, He's got some plan for me and Lauren to be responsible for that, to bring him glory and honor through that, that we need to figure out. That that he has entrusted us with a baby that may not be completely healthy, so that we can bring glory and honor to him through that. That's me recognizing that God doesn't know me anything. 
I mean, He has given me the most important, most valuable thing that I could ever have, the hope of eternal life with Him. I mean, what He owes me is is minuscule when you think about that. You think about what what Paul's perspective could have been. Here I am, I'm, I'm walking around planting churches, preaching the gospel, and all I get is persecution. I end up in jail almost everywhere I go. And he could easily have the perspective of, God, you owe me a better life than this. You owe me more fruit than what I'm seeing. But think about Paul's perspective and think about what God's doing in putting him in jail. We just talked about him getting thrown in jail in Philippi. He starts a church in Philippi with the Philippian jailer's family. He comes in contact with people in this jail, a man in this jail that he otherwise never would have seen or talked to probably. He's in jail when he writes back to the church in Philippi, Philippians 1, which we talked about a long time ago at main event. He says, you can rejoice with me in my chains because I am talking with people regularly who I never would have seen before. I am giving the gospel to people who would have never had it before. Lauren and I will will interact with people in a week and a half as we can see the specialist we would have never met before. I don't know God's plan and why the the doctor sees a, a, a something on the ultrasound. But I know already that God's going to bring us into contact with people that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. And we have an opportunity to point others to God and to His sovereignty and to our hope in His sovereignty through a situation like this. The goal of the gospel, the goal of our life, has to be seen as the glory of God and not our good. We understand that even in bad times, God is working those things for our good because He's doing it for His glory. The glory of God is what we have to be after, even at the cost of our comfort. His glory is ultimately my good. Therefore, being obedient and faithful is better than anything, even in the midst of suffering. As an ambassador, my life is devoted to the furtherance of the gospel for His glory, meaning all my decisions in my life should be shaped by it. We know that that the Bible uses that language, that we're ambassadors. But when we really take hold of the fact that it's about His glory and not our comfort, it should shape every decision that we make. For me and Lauren, we're trying to buy a house. We're trying to shape the purchase of the house through the gospel lens. We want a house that we can do ministry from. We want a a house that allows us enough money left over to do ministry. We want it to be in a location that we believe we can do ministry from. We don't want to just buy a house because it's good for us. We want to buy a house that is also good for others as well, that we believe we can use for ministry. The gospel shapes every decision that we make. If we allow it to be, uh, we're, we're focusing on the goal that it's for God's glory and not our comfort and not our good. We saw last week in the book of Daniel that Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel have this perspective. And I, and I love that scene. And I saw, I watched an old video of Matt Chandler when he was still going through cancer treatment. He made reference to it as well. He says, I know God can heal me, but if he doesn't, I'm still going to praise him. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to Nebuchadnezzar. They said, our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And we believe he will deliver us from the fiery furnace. But essentially they tell Nebuchadnezzar, if you could see into the future and tell us that our God's not going to deliver us, we're still not going to bow down to your image. Because we're going to believe that dying in the furnace is for our good because it's for God's glory. So when we have this perspective that it's all about God's glory and not our comfort, it allows us to suffer well in a way that points others to Jesus. The, the, the culmination in the fiery furnace story and even a couple of chapters later in the lion's den story is not that Daniel's rescued from the lion's den. It's not that the boys are rescued from the fiery furnace. So often our children's stories end right there. The end of the story is what the kings, both Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, do with what they just witnessed. They send out word to everybody that we now worship the God of Daniel and we now worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it always uses languages in both those scenarios that people from every tribe, nation, and language, and tongue were told to do this. A prerequisite to what happens in Revelation. 
where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are at the throne room of God, worshiping Him for eternity. It's all about God's glory. It's not about the comfort of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's not about the comfort of us. The goal of the story is God's glory. So we endure in the gospel. Next, we grow in it. We grow in it. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 3, for our appeal does not spring from error. It does not spring from error. Paul says, the message that we are telling you has no error in it. We have deepened our understanding of the gospel so that we can share it with you accurately. We have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to know the gospel. Some elements that I wrote down that need to be in the definition. The problem is that there's sin that we can't fix. Sin that we can't fix. Romans 3, 10 through 18. It's a passage that obliterates any claim to good works for anybody. That we're open, we're open tombs of death, basically. That when we try to do good, it just stinks. There's no one who can do good. The solution is that Christ alone brings us to God. Christ brings us to God. Every other religion teaches that we bring ourselves to God. That, that salvation is us finding God. Christianity reverses it and says salvation is about God finding us. It's about God seeking us. It's about God rescuing us. It's not about us bringing ourselves to God. 1 Peter 3.18 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 show us that this happens through divine substitution. Jesus takes our sin, we get his righteousness. It's the divine exchange. It's propitiation. It's imputation. It's, it's Jesus taking wrath for us. It's, it's us getting his righteousness. And then the reason, the reason is my good for his glory. My good for his glory. 2 Timothy 4.18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. But that's, a, that's a summary of the gospel. God is rescuing me so that he can bring me into his kingdom. Why? To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. It's about His glory, not just about the rescuing of us. The purpose of rescuing us is for His glory. We also see in 2 Timothy 1, 13-14, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you, Timothy. Guard it. Know it and guard it. That's why one of our essentials for discipleship is to know the gospel. To know it in a simple definition, but to know it for the rest of your life as you come to a deeper understanding of all the elements that make up the gospel. Number three, protect it. Protect it. We grow in it and we protect it. Confident, bold, biblical preaching does not lead to popularity with lost people or to Satan's forces. When we faithfully proclaim the gospel that we're, we're growing in and trying to protect, it doesn't breed popularity with lost people. It doesn't breed popularity with Satan. Now, it's hard for us to differentiate when God is doing something, when Satan is wanting to do something. It's hard for us to identify suffering in our life. Is it, is it discipline for sin? Is it God's instruction? Is it Satan trying to, to do something to us that God is allowing? We don't really have the ability to discern all the times what they are. So we just have to understand that at times we're being disciplined for sin, and if the Holy Spirit's convicting of us of that, then that's more than likely what's going on there. But it's hard to understand if God is intentionally 
doing something absent from what Satan wants, or if Satan has come to God wanting to stunt our growth, wanting to stunt our ministry. We see that. Paul says, Satan hindered me from getting to you. Satan stopped me from getting to you to bring you more gospel, to bring you sanctificational messages. Satan stopped me. So we have to understand that as we proclaim a gospel boldly, biblically, doesn't breed popularity. But joyful service in the midst of that suffering produces a more radiant gospel. We have a responsibility to recognize and expose false gospels. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, we see this entrusted idea again. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Paul says, Timothy, always know the gospel. Always beginning to know the gospel better so that you never swerve from it. So that you never allow some wolf to come in and, and contradict this gospel and get you off the path. Know the gospel. Be able to recognize false gospels. Be able to differentiate what is and isn't good news. Any gospel that has good works attached to it for God's approval is not good news. It's not good news. Paul says, know it, protect it. Number four, reflect it. Reflect it. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he says, We came to you, and our appeal does not spring from error. So we know it, like we know that we're, we know we're presenting an accurate gospel without error. Nor does it spring from impurity. And Paul's calling us to a life worthy of the gospel to lead others to mature salvation. You can look at 1, Thessalonians, 1 Timothy 1, 3-19 to see that even more. He says, we came to you with a gospel, and we came to it without impurity in our life. There was no impure motives. What was, what was prevalent during this time, as I, as I understood more about the background, is not too often different than what we have today, that there were people who would come with gospel ministry for the purpose of taking advantage of people financially and sexually. That's the two most common things that we find in churches today that cause churches to crumble. Financial issues and sexual issues from leadership. People who are out to take money from the church and people who are out to take uh, sexual desires that they have and have them fulfilled through the church. There's, there's churches that, that, are, that are going through this right now. Um, I was talking with a, a lady that I teach with at Trinity. She, um, she used to work at another Christian school in Georgia and only worked there for a short time. And I said, what happened? Like, why, why, did, why did you stop working there? And she said, well, the church fell apart. They had to shut the doors. And I said, why? And she said, because the, uh, the pastor and the head deacon took all the money from the church and ran. And there was nothing left. And so we had to shut down. That, that's still going on today. Paul says, I'm here. Because this is what he's being accused of. He's being accused of, uh, of doing this for financial gain or for sexual desires. Because even during, during this time, there was a belief that if you, uh, if you had sexual encounter with a spiritual leader like this, it gave you a special connection to God. So these guys would come in and pray on, on women and communicate an ability to get in touch with God to satisfy their sexual desires. Paul was being accused of this. He says, he says, I came with you without any impurity. My life backs up the gospel that I'm sharing. When we've been entrusted with this gospel, we have to make sure that our life has been radically changed by it. No impurity there. I'll share it with my sixth grade students. Daniel had enemies in, in uh, the Persian Empire for his faithfulness. It says that these men tried to catch Daniel in something to report it to the king, and they could find nothing. He's not perfect. But he had made such a decision to stay away from evil that these guys couldn't catch him doing anything. He worked hard at his job. He showed up on time. He respected his, his leaders at work. I mean, he did everything that he was supposed to do from a responsible standpoint. And, and they had to make up something to catch him in it. Paul says, we came to you without any impurity. Number five, we declare it. 
We declare it. He says we came also without any attempt to deceive. That word deceive is the same word that they would have used for a fish hook. For those of you that like to fish, you know that the goal is to trick the fish into thinking they're eating something good so that we can enjoy taking them out of the water and bragging about how big our fish is that we caught. We're, we're out to deceive. We're out to deceive the animal into thinking that it's eating something that it commonly eats. Paul says, I did not come with you, come to you with the purpose of deceiving you or tricking you into getting saved for my personal gain. I came to you without error, without impurity, and without any deception. He says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We must proclaim a true message. We must proclaim a true message in pure motives with no deception. When we say that we've been entrusted with the gospel, it means we endure it. We love God's plan so much. We love the purpose of his plan so much that it's for his glory that we're okay with suffering. That we suffer well, so we endure it. We grow in it. We love the gospel. We love what God is doing so much that we want to know it in depth so that we can communicate its depths to others. We protect it so that we never swerve from the faith. We reflect it without impurity so that we have a valid message that really does change. And we declare it. Because if it really is good news for this world, how can we not declare it? Now here's where I want to end. Am I being a good steward? God's entrusted you with the gospel. Are you being a good steward with what's been entrusted to you? I think it's really important to note how Paul presents this. The first thing there. We are approved by God. We are approved by God. Don't don't miss this. Like I know I know I know it's time to be done. Like I know we've looked at a lot already. Don't miss this part. Because this is what empowers you to be faithful with the gospel that you've been entrusted with. Is that you have been approved by God. And sometimes I highlight the importance of of the actual words the Holy Spirit puts here. This word approved. Is past tense. It's past tense. Paul says, I've already been approved by God. So he's entrusted me with the gospel. God has already determined that you are useful to the gospel plan. If you're saved, God determined that you were useful. Because we can sit here and say, oh, I'm not good at sharing the gospel. I'm not, I'm not good with my words. Um, I get nervous around people. I don't, I don't know a lot of lost people. We can use the same excuses that Moses used that we looked at a couple of months ago when he was at Mount Sinai. And God was telling him to go proclaim freedom to Israel, to the Pharaoh. And he says, I, I, I got a lot of excuses for you. Let me start listing them for you. We can sit here and say, you got the wrong person. There are some people who are gifted with evangelism and it's not me. But you miss the point if you miss what Paul's saying here. He says, you've been approved already by God. God knew who you were. God knew your limitations. And he said, approved and trusted. He approved you because he saved you. Because every Christian has the responsibility to live a gospel-worthy life that is proclaimed to others. We all have the responsibility to make disciples. So by saving you, God approved you for his gospel plan. He looked at you and said, yeah, I recognize all your, all your faults and all your failures and all your inadequacies. You're approved. I want you on this team. I, I, I want you on this team. He called us because he determined he wanted us. In the, uh, in the National Football League, there's, there's a draft where they draft college people onto their team. And the responsibility of the general manager is to determine if this guy's a good fit for his team based on the schemes that they want to run. If they're running a certain defense or a certain offense, they draft college players based on them fitting good into their system. God looked at you and said, you fit into my system. My goal of expanding the gospel is to take people, to save them, to have them teach others how to follow Jesus. 
And you fit into that plan. You're approved. With all your inadequacies, I determine that you're approved to be a part of this plan. Our approval comes from an omniscient God that already knows our successes and failures. We must operate based on this approval. Paul's boldness to express the gospel was not based on thinking people liked him or that he was particularly good at it. Look what he says back at the beginning. He says in verse 2, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. Paul's not going around proclaiming it boldly because he thinks people like him or he thinks that he's a good speaker. That's not what empowers him. He doesn't, you know, especially think that he's good at it necessarily. He's got boldness because he, because he recognizes an omniscient God, a God who knows everything, drafted me. He drafted me onto his team. He approved me. He looked at me and said, I fit into his system. And he knew how I was going to fail. He knew how I had inadequacies. And he put me on his team. So I can speak boldly. I can speak confidently knowing that an omniscient God has already approved me. We work for a God who has approved our work already. Next, we are tested by God. We are tested by God. God does not determine if our efforts are in vain by our results, but by our motives. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 5, and we'll close. It says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Paul says, I'm not concerned with whether or not you think I'm good for the gospel. I'm not concerned if you think I'm worthy to be entrusted with the gospel. He says, I'm not concerned about you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He says, I'm not even determining if I should be entrusted with the gospel. It's not up to me. I don't have the option to say, God, I don't think think I'm worthy of being entrusted with it. He says, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. But I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation. Not condemnation, but commendation from God. That's what Paul says at the end of chapter four, or verse 4. He says, I don't speak to get the approval of men. I speak because I've already been approved by God. He tests my heart. He knows my genuine desire for His glory He knows I'm not a good speaker. He knows I get scared talking to people about the gospel. But he approved me. He entrusted with me the gospel. His plan. His only plan to save man. He says, I I, I work. I labor. Based on the past tense approval of God. He already drafted me. He already approved me. So now I can confidently work knowing that I am pleasing him. I am pleasing him by doing what he's asked. And I don't have to worry about the results because he's responsible for the results. It means that as sovereign hope, we can confidently share the gospel. We can declare it as we endure in it, as we grow in it, as we protect it. We can do all these things knowing that God has already approved us. We're not earning God's approval through how we share the gospel. We've already gained it. God already looked at us and said, I want you on my team. I want to entrust you with it. We'll continue to look at this passage moving forward as we try to digest how we as a a church can be faithful stewards of this gospel that's been entrusted to us. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you for your salvation that you have given to us. God, we thank you that your grace and your love identified us as as creations that were in need of you for salvation. God, we're thankful that you didn't abandon us in our sin and rebellion, but instead you, you concocted a plan before time ever began to redeem us, to rescue us through your Son, Jesus Christ, so that you received the maximum glory possible. God, help us to recognize that despite your intense love for us, we are a small piece of this plan. That it is not about our comfort. It's not about our daily enjoyment of this life from an earthly standpoint. 
God, instead, help us to find that, that our joy comes from recognizing that we have been saved into a family with you. That our joy on a daily basis comes from having you. That Christ becomes our joy beyond any earthly comfort. God, help us to recognize that it's your glory that our life is about and not ourselves. God, help us to recognize that you don't owe us anything. That you don't repay us for our faithful service with a good life here on this earth. That our commendation for our faithfulness is coming on the day that Christ returns. When we're ushered into eternity. God, help us to realize that that's when we enjoy the fruit of our labors. But God, we're thankful that that even in, in the midst of suffering, that our work's not in vain, as Paul says. That you do give us the encouragement of seeing fruit even now. God, we praise you and thank you for that. God, help us to recognize that as stewards you have entrusted us with your gospel. That we need to know it and protect it. We need to allow it to change us from the inside out so that we can declare it more and more faithfully. God, help us to to live in the reality that you've approved us. That you knew us before the beginning of time. You approved us. That that aspect of our work is is already taken care of. God, help it to, to allow us to live freely knowing that we can joyfully spread the good news of you to others and know that it pleases you because we've already been approved by you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.